thanks for coming to lunch. Uh, hope you're quite intrigued by the title of the presentation. I hope so. Uh, it's, I'm not going to show you any code today, uh, no live demo. It's going to be more like abstract overview of how I think the future will look for us. It's kind of going to be my prediction. And um, I'm expecting your questions. We may disagree, we may discuss that. I'll just show you the, the, the dynamic I see right now, what's happening and how we're going over the last, I think, 15 years and what I think will happen in the next, I don't know, five, 10 years. Uh, so I, I, I try to look at the, uh, it, it, the time goes from left to right. So I try to analyze what I've seen uh, in my work, working with servers where web applications are deployed and I started doing that about like 15 years ago. And the first step was SSH. So it was like terminals, uh, connecting to servers, making changes. We'll discuss it right now. The next uh, kind of phase or uh, era of how servers are managed, I separated into two different uh, directions. The first one I called CHEF, and I'll explain now why. The second one I called PASS, which is uh, a platform as a service, you probably know what it is. And then the, the, the step number three, which happened like over the last three, four years, I call it Docker, kind of label it as Docker, that's what I see is happening. And the last one, this is the prediction, this is what I think will happen, I call it immutable servers, IS. Uh, it's not just my prediction, you've probably read articles about immutable servers and what it is. But I will try to, 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 to explain how I think we'll, we will work with servers in the future and how we'll actually keep them in GitHub. So how our servers will actually stay in GitHub and how we're gonna modify them. So the whole broad is from SSH, from terminals, to GitHub kind of. So let me start. Uh, the first step was SSH. You, I'm, I'm sure you know what it is. How many actually system administrators or people who use terminals are here? You raise your hands. Uh, not so many, about like 30%. So the rest are programmers, I guess, right? So you're writing code, but you don't access servers. Am I right? Yes. But you definitely know what SSH is. You have to. So this is it's a, it's a it's a daemon running on the uh, it's a SSH kind of it's a name of a client, but the daemon is called SSH daemon. It's a software which stays on the on the server and helps us to connect from the client from my laptop to connect to the server and make modifications on the servers. So this is how it all started, this web development. So we buy a computer, just a computer, we connect it to internet, we put it in some uh, hosting center, and then we run the Linux there or any other operating system, like Unix kind of, and then we start the daemon, which listening on the TCP port, and the TCP port 22, and then the clients all over the world, they're able to connect there to the server and make modifications to the software installed there. So system administrators, they were, uh, it was necessary, it was a title, it was a job title of a person who knew how to make modifications to the server, how to install Apache there, how to install PHP into Apache, how to install MySQL, how to make all these modifications and maintain the server. So server starts today and it goes for many, many years, staying there, unchangeable, well, un it stays, it stays the same, but the person, the system administrator, keeps updating it, keeps making modifications. That's how it all worked. That's how it worked for years. 
most web systems were managed administered like that. There were tons of software created to help the system administrators to, to administer the server, to see what's going on in the server, to regularly log in there and check the status. And there were created a number of tools for that, like package management, to ma management tools, which allowed system administrator to install that, that, that products there, like Apache, for example, in one line. So 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when I was installing my first web servers, it was like a work of a full day work or two days of work in order to install Apache, to install PHP, MySQL, uh, put it all together and make sure they work together. It was necessary to get the source code of Apache, compile it all, make sure it actually compiles, install C compile, all this together. It was like full time for one or maybe two days of work to install everything. If you have two servers, you have to do it twice. So you have two servers, you log into the second server, you do it again. You log into the third one, you do it again. You do it manually. And then they introduce this package manager. So you just log into the server and you say apt get install Apache. Enter, it works for like you know 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and boom, Apache is installed with default configuration. Then you want to just change the configuration, you change some files, and it works the way you want. It was a great achievement, which happened, I don't know, maybe like 10 years or something, maybe even earlier. So that's the first phase. That's what we have. It's gone. Like professional administrators, they're not doing that anymore, to my knowledge. So this is like kind of the past. What we have now is called, I would call the chaff era. So probably you know what the Chaff software is. If you don't, I'll explain in a few words. The Chaff software, and there are a few other softwares which are doing the same, like Puppet or Ansible, and there are 20 plus tools I just found yesterday, Googling them. I know just Puppet and Ansible, I never used others. But the Chaff is kind of the main one, I think, in the market. And what it does is that you install it on your main server, this Chaff you know, software, it has a web panel, and then you log into this Chaff, to this panel, and say, I have 15 servers, 50 servers. And these are their coordinates, their IP addresses. This, 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 and this one. So you put a list of, of servers, all the IP addresses, and you configure how this main machine can access them all. And then you say, from this main machine, install Apache to all of them. And then the chaff goes to all of them through SSH and, and run this apt-get install Apache. apt-get install Apache, 50 times. That actually saves you a lot of time. So if you're a system administrator, you don't need to go 50 times there. You don't need to install it manually, of course, like it was before. And you don't even need to run this apt-get anymore because Chef will do it all for you. So it automates this routine operations. And then, for example, you want to upgrade Apache. It was version number 2.3.9, and then you want to upgrade it to 10. So all you do is you log into Chef and say, now I want Apache 2.3.10. And then the Chef goes to all of these servers and upgrades them automatically. And you can define the so-called cookbooks and recipes inside the Chef. So you can write in Ruby. This Chef is Ruby-based software. So you can write like small scripts or small you know, pieces of kind of recipes. And you say, like, I want not just Apache. Apache is the default recipe. So you just download it, it's open source, and it, it, it's a script which explains how this chat machine gets to the server and what exactly it has to do there. You can create your own, your own recipe and say, I want MongoDB there to be installed, or I want my own application, application to be installed, or I want something else. So you, as a system administrator, you configure all the steps. 
You put this recipe into Chef, and then Chef goes everywhere and runs it again and again. If something goes wrong, for example, one server it logs in and it breaks, the script cannot run, then Chef informs you and says, like, server number 15 actually failed because this and that. So it's easier. So professional system administrators, they don't go to servers manually anymore. They create recipes and cookbooks in Chef. And then they just look at this Chef machine and, and configure everything and monitor. If you have thousands of servers, it's like, that would be really weird if you still have SSH access everywhere and you, and you contact them like individually and make changes there like individually. You log in there. It's not happening. So it's kind of chef error. It's just, it's just everywhere. If you're, if you're a system administrator, you definitely know what I'm talking about. The Opsworks, it's the, it's the product from Amazon, from Amazon Web Services. So if you're using them, you definitely know what it is because now many servers I mean, we don't buy them anymore. We rent them from Amazon or similar platforms like Google Cloud or Rackspace or somebody else. Uh, but the Amazon is number one. So when you rent this service on Amazon, you will need this, you can get this Opsworks, which is exactly chat. So inside this product, there's chat there. So all they give you is the ability to, to do the same inside Amazon environment. So you rent the number of instances in Amazon, like 100 machines, and then you get the account there, and then all these 100 machines get under control, and you, you specify the recipes, and they get deployed to machines. So recipes, they deploy these recipes to machines. This is what's kind of fresh. This is state of the art, sort of. At the same time, this is like, I, I remind you, I, I jump back two slides. So that was the, the direction that way. So we forgot about that, and we jumped to check. But there's another direction where we also, you know, stepped into, like about seven years ago or something, which is called platform as a service. So we're kind of forgetting about servers at all. So we don't have this idea of having a server and forget about SSH again, so you don't log in anywhere. But in this case, you don't have a server at all. You don't think in terms of servers. All you think about is your application. Well, I'm writing in Java, so in my case, it's just a jar file. So it's a file packaged as a Java application, and I give it to some platform, and the platform decides where to find the server, how to install Apache there or not Apache, how to configure everything, and then how to run my application. So I don't know about the IP address anymore. I don't have an IP address of the server. In case of Chef, I still, you know, I still work with machines. I still know IP addresses. I still know how. I mean, I, I know the logins. I know where physically these machines are located. In this case, I have no idea. All I do is I, I package my application, I put it to the platform, and then this platform deploys everything and, and starts and, and starts to run. A number of solutions. Heroku is probably one of the well, one of the most popular, I think, and Elastic Beanstalk is one of the most serious, I think. That's from from Amazon. This one is from Red Hat. Am I right? OpenShift, Red Hat, right? Yes, OpenShift is from Red Hat. I have no experience with this one. I'll kind of try it. But these two I'm using like in, in a number of projects. Heroku is quite stable. All I do is that I, I connect to Heroku. I don't connect to the server. I don't know how many servers are there in Heroku. I connect to Heroku through their like interesting their interfaces like Git, Git interface. So all I do is in command line, I say Git push. And I push my Java code to them. They do all the work they need, they find the right server for my application, they start it, and they charge me for the, for the time my application is, is kind of active there on their machines. 
That's a really like interesting strategy again, which is popular and getting bigger and bigger. So we are like stepping away from from terminals from SSH. And and the next step, which is the last three four years, I would call it Docker time. It's not exactly Docker. I just put the label there. So this is containers time. So we are now starting to think in terms of containers, not servers anymore. The container is is kind of you know what container is probably the container is a small it's like a uh, it's it's a, like a machine which is which is able to work somewhere but there's no physical server behind that we just know that it's a machine that contains the fully functional operating system inside like Linux for example so we have we have Linux in this container everything is pre-installed there and then we just get this container and our application is also there. So we put everything together, the, the system, the operating system, our application, all together. And then we just get this container and give it to some server or to some platform as a service. It doesn't matter. So we give it to somebody and then that somebody starts this whole thing and it starts to work. So both, I'm jumping back. So in both cases, they're all joining here, I think. Because platforms as a service, they also start to understand containers. Because just giving a Java application to Hero, it's okay if my Java, Java application is kind of simple. But if I want to put Java plus MongoDB plus, uh, I don't know, some load balancer plus some, um, some extra software for Linux, then I can't do that. Because for Hero, I can only give my Java code, that's all. So I cannot, I cannot give them Java code plus C++ code and say run it all together. It's not possible. So all they can do for me, they can run Java application. It's kind of limiting. It's not enough. The same here. The same with the, the Elastic Beanstalk. So they only understand one language. It's, a, it's not good. In case of containers, we're all like merging here. In, in case of containers, we, we package all together. And then we either can drop that container to the server, to the machine, you know, knowing the IP address. Or give it to platform as a service and say, run my container. When you start that container and run it, you don't care what's inside the container. C++ code, Java code, whatever, MongoDB, it doesn't matter because the fully functional operating system inside the container. If you don't know what the, this container is, you definitely need to like, read about it. It's really easy, it's not so difficult, this containerization paradigm. And the number of solutions. So, um, well, first of all, the DevOps, that term kind of started to become more and more popular in the last few years. I think together with this containerization idea that we kind of stop, stop saying system administrators, we're talking about DevOps. Because, because I think because developers are now more and more interested in creating the application together with, the, with everything around it. So we are not right, we're not like before we are writing the application and then system administrator knows how to put this application to production. Now, when we're developers, we know how to put everything together. I know how to write my Java code, and I'm also interested and I want to know how this Java code will work together with everything else inside the container. So that's why DevOps, so we join together developers and operations. Dev is people who write code, ops are people who actually put pieces together and make sure they work together. So that's why DevOps is, I think, becoming more and more popular because of this containerization strategy, I think so. They're kind of joining, they're kind of going together. Uh, Kubernetes. Kubernetes and Mesos kind of popular uh, products, which help you to administer many, 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 many containers running everywhere. It's like this chat software. The chat was for managing servers, 
Now that, that guys are helping you to manage containers. So you just give them a container and you configure, you know, and you say and you explain where are the servers, where to put these containers. And the Kubernetes will just put them everywhere, stop and start them, and you will be able to manage everything from one central point of control. Because again, if you have a thousand servers and you have uh, five thousand containers, it's going to be quite difficult to go to each server and start and stop the different containers. So you need some management tool which will help you to, to administer containers. Um, cloud formation is, uh, is not exactly about containers, but it's kind of the next step also in Amazon configuration. So cloud formation is an Amazon service which helps you to uh, pre-configure your, it's not exactly, they don't deal with containers, but they help you to pre-configure how your application should look, and then without knowing the, the, the IP addresses, they just start everything for you all together. So they start a machine, they start the DynamoDB database, they start a, a private network, they start something else, and they start in one go. So you go to CloudFormation, you click the button, and everything just starts all together. So you don't need to do it manually. It's kind of similar to Chef, but a bit more advanced. And um, the next talk after mine will be about, the, 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 about CloudFormation as well, so I recommend you to attend to know more about it. I'm not a like, regular user, I tried it a few times, it helped, but if you're really like, serious about Amazon, you definitely need to know that. Um, Docker Hub. Who ever used Docker Hub as a user? One, two, three, four, oh, that's great, like 15 people. So for, for people who didn't use it, Docker Hub is, uh, it's a like, free, well, I never paid them anything, but I guess there's some paid accounts could exist, but I never paid. So all you do is you create your, in GitHub, you create the configuration of your container in the one simple Docker file, so-called. Mm -hmm. You explain that you need Apache, you need Java, you need uh, MySQL, you need that kind of software. You just you know just write a script how it should be executed, and then you connect Git, uh, Docker Hub to your GitHub account and say create an image for me from my configuration. And Docker Hub, what they do is that they get this configuration from your GitHub account. They start a server, some server. They run Docker over there, asking Docker to build that image for you. I mean, to, to put the, you know, to make a binary file, a big, like, four gigabyte binary file out of all this configuration. They build it for you, and they keep it there in the, on their machines. Well, they use, I think, Amazon S3. So they just keep it there, and then everybody can use that image, that Docker image, for, for their purposes. It's really popular now, and uh, the integration between GitHub and Docker Hub is really tight, really good, so I recommend to take a look at it. So this is like the first part of my presentation, and now I think what's gonna be the future. This is, this is the past, not the past, this is the, 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 the present. So this is what's happening now, it's great, all these tools are good, you need to know them, and they really help, they really turn us developers into DevOps. So now, clear developers, pure developers who don't know about their software will be deployed are not the real developers. So if you're serious about writing software, you need to know how to containerize them. So you need to know how to your software to, to make sure that your software is, is presented as a container to their users. So just making the software and saying, I don't know about how it, you know, how it runs on the server is not enough, it's not professional. I guess, so we need to be more DevOps than just developers. Am I clear so far? Are you ready for the future? Yeah. Okay. 
Well, I'm not because uh, <laughs> it's gonna be it's gonna be more a prediction. So I can I can demonstrate you why how it's gonna work. I can show you how exactly it will be. It will happen. I can't demonstrate any tools because I don't, either I don't know them or they don't exist. But I I guess they will be created. So my vision is this: uh, is that well. Let's, let's think I'm the DevOps, I'm a, let's say I'm a good developer and I want to create my application so that it works together with the container. So I want to write Java code and I want to create this Docker file next to my Java, for my Java code. So, and I want them to work together so that somebody starts that container and makes you know, HTTP requests, then there, some, that, that there, there will be HTTP responses. How do I do that right now? I write Java code, I write unit tests, I run them together, I make a build more or less clear. The Java code works. And now I create Docker file. I say install Java 8, install this, install that, install all the packages we need together, and my software. Then I run Docker, uh, Docker build, right? It's called to create an image, Docker build. So I run Docker build to create an image. Let's say I have some, some errors there. So the Docker build fails because, you know, some typos or whatever. Okay, I make it clean. I make it, I make it work. So I have the Docker file and I have the, the image. The image is created. So I have the Docker image. And then I run it. And it doesn't work. So what do I do? In most cases, right now, what's happening to me, I, I do Docker run with, this, with the SSH daemon inside the Docker container. So I start the Docker container. And then I log in there through SSH, like 25 years ago. And I see what's wrong there. So I'm trying to make changes. I'm trying to understand why it doesn't work. So I'm kind of debugging it. I'm debugging and I'm making changes. I'm thinking how to do it right. And then I make the changes and rebuild the Docker container. And I try again. And then I try again. It's more or less OK if it's one Docker container. But there are a number of them. If the application is more complex, then this debugging will be quite difficult and in the end what we have now is that even if we have docker containers everywhere in most key cases people still have ssh access to them they still access them they still you know want, i mean they, they use them directly they, they get connected to them and they and they make modifications inside containers so we don't have immutable servers so far we just have an idea of immutable servers but still when containers when we start that containers in most cases, we'll log in there and we make changes there to make them work. What I think will happen is that we will build an application in the future. The Java, some code, plus the container, and plus the testing level on top of containers. So it's going to be the app, the container, and some sort of integration tests around that container. So when I create the code, I write it and I write tests which will check that my whole application, together with containers, works together as a whole big app, you know, which is deployed. And then if it doesn't work, then I just try to build it all together, and it fails. And then I make changes, and I build it again, and I run it again. It fails again, I make changes, I run it again. But I don't log in there, I don't do debugging. Like it was, like, like, like unit testing and programming replaced debugging many years ago. So now if we're actually debugging, uh, when writing code, it's kind of a bad practice. So it's better to write unit tests and do test-driven development. So you create a test, and then you create a code, they work together, 
and that's it. Again, you create a test, you create the code, you put together, and that's it. You don't go into the code, you don't go step by step like debugging. It's like from the past. The same with the servers. So going to the server through SSH is the past. The future is debug, is, is, is unit testing them. Well, integration testing them. How exactly it's gonna happen, I don't, I mean, I don't know these tools, I don't think they're still, like they're, they already exist, but that's, I think, will be, and then it's gonna be the future. And then, when it's the future will come, then the, application will be, the applications will be delivered as completely in GitHub. So everything will stay in GitHub. This is my Java files, these are my Docker files, these are my tests. So you compile, you build, you run the tests, the application works in the test environment, in the test, on the test machine, and then you exactly like that, you get all these containers together and deploy the production. And there is sort of a guarantee that it works in production. That's, I think, what's gonna happen. So that's why I'm saying keep your servers on GitHub. So your servers will not be somewhere where you know. It's not gonna be, you're not gonna have like IP addresses of them. You will have some platform where you can just drop all your containers together and the platform will just start them all together and will work. So you will not care about IP addresses, you will not care about uh, SSH. And if it doesn't work, then you get back, you, you, you check your tests and you see why, what, what did I miss in my tests? That's how. That's exactly what you do when you when you do unit testing in, in, in the software. So you don't debug if something doesn't work. You reproduce the problem in the test. When you created the app, you put it in production. Then in production it crashes. You get back to your code and, and try. The first step you do is you try to reproduce the problem in a test. If you don't have enough tests, that's your bug. So you create extra tests to reproduce that that failure you just saw. And then you create an extra test, and then you, you make sure the test fails. That's a success for you. If you manage to create an extra test which fails, then you fix that test, then you build this whole thing again. If it's green, if the build is clear, then you put it to production again. It crashes again, you get back to the code, and again, reproduce, try to create the test again. It fails, great, it's success, and then you fix it and put it back. The same will happen with server integration. When it crashes in production, you're not going to go there through SSH and fix it there, here and there, because you know how to. You'll get back, reproduce in the test, which will catch that bug in your docket configuration, in your container configuration, and then redeploy the whole thing. So you will never touch production. You will only redeploy the whole thing with all the containers together. And that's why it's called immutable servers. So all your servers will be always starting from scratch. You deploy it, you open the web page, it crashes, then you drop everything, rebuild the whole thing, and put these new containers there, and all servers start from scratch. So you never make modifications to servers. That's what I think is going to happen. And that's, yeah, and of course, it's going to be no SSH. So the SSH, the ability to log into the server, I think is going to be gone. We're not going to do it live. You know, and we're not going to do it locally. It's going to be always Docker file configuration. That's all I wanted to say. Now let me know what you think. Am I close? Am I thinking the right direction? Yes. Yes? Yes. One yes. One you have one no? What one? What? Yeah. Uh, in Team uh, IO, uh, your company, uh, how do you manage uh, your environment right now? I mean, what do you use? Use Amazon, for example? Well, yeah, we'll, we're, 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 we were here. <laughs> So we're not there, we're not in the future, we're in the present. So we use Docker Hub, we use Docker, uh, we use Amazon Images, of course. 
Uh, we don't use Chef anymore, so we decided to go for platform as a service completely. So this is the way we, we decided to took, and it's kind of, um, I'm, I'm happy about it. I'm not sure how would that work if we would, we don't have huge web applications. We don't have applications with hundreds of servers. So I don't know exactly how would that work with the uh, Elastic Beanstalk or Heroku if we would have hundreds of machines, but I think they will be able to handle that. But some people say, you know, and we don't have security constraints because some companies, they have really tight security constraints and they say, no Amazon, no Heroku, we just need to have our private data center and that's why install like a hundred machines and then deploy and then we need to use chat. But uh, I think it's just the wrong thinking, the wrong way of thinking because the, the, the main reason I always give back is that think about how much effort Amazon spends on security and how much effort you can spend in your private data center. So in case of Amazon, you just trust one company, which is a huge American company, which, I mean, yeah, we are in Europe, they're in America, but still, we just trust one big company. We sign a contract and we give them our data and everything. And they pay millions of dollars every month for security. How much we can afford for our data center. So that way of thinking, saying that Amazon is insecure, I mean, Amazon is another company and we need to our company, it's just wrong. So I think this is the right direction, platform as a service, answering your question. I'm a big fan of Heroku. Uh, I'm even an author of the plugin for Elastic Beanstalk, the de deployment plugin. I created myself, open source plugin, for deploying Java applications to Elastic Beanstalk because the plugin which existed on the market uh, at that time was not really you know, convenient for me. It was plugin quite, for what? Huh? Plugin for Jenkins? Or? No, no, plugin for me. I'm sorry, I didn't say for me. Yeah, yeah. So Maven plugin, which allows you to deploy your app to Elastic Beanstalk in just one line of code. So you just say use my plugin and then say deploy, and it does everything. Because deploying to Elastic Beanstalk is kind of complicated, you know, set of steps. So it's not that easy. Uh, deploying to Heroku is also not that easy if you want to do it automatically, but it's again like ten lines of code, which you can see in a few of my open source apps. I also automated that. So I'm a big fan of this of these two solutions. Answering your question. Yeah. Uh, one comment. Uh, how does it scale? To like uh, you're talking about deploying to servers or mm -hmm. deploying to cloud. Mm -hmm. How does it scale to deploying to mobile devices? Your TV, your uh, I don't know, uh, vacuum cleaner, mm -hmm. Internet of Things, your watch, yeah. your watch, wherever. Uh, <coughs> Well, as far as I understand, the deployment to all of these devices, they're kind of two-step deployment. So you, as a developer, you deploy to some platform, yeah. Apple Store or whatever, and then that platform manages the deployment to all these devices all over the world. So there's two-step deployments. The second step is, I don't know how they do it, honestly. That's a kind of massive problem. They deploy to millions of devices. How we deploy to the platform? It's similar to how we deployed the, for example, I'm developing open source software for Ruby, for example, or JavaScript, NPM. You know what NPM, NPM is? It's like a you know repository for Java, uh, for Java libraries. So I develop locally and then I deploy to NPM in one go. Say again? JavaScript. What did I say? Uh, JavaScript, sorry. Yeah, so the JavaScript libraries, I deploy to NPM, and then NPM deploy, like, gives it to millions of users. So all I need to automate is deployment to the NPM. So but it still gets down to like SSH to your device if you're, uh, you don't have like Apple-like uh, platform for your device.
this and, and then like run npm install or <coughs> whatever. Locally I have to locally I have to do npm. Well, you're talking about deploying from npm to people, to, to users, to end users? Like if you're deploying, uh, if you're a small device maker. Then you need to use some, ah, if you're the maker of device. Yes. Ah, in that case, well, you, well, never, I never saw that problem. I didn't, I didn't do that. So, but I can imagine that that's. Um, you, you, you have to have like similar abstraction layer. My uh, hardware is uh -huh. uh, described in GitHub. Uh -huh. It has these and these dependencies. This software gets uh, inside, and then like the, the magic you describe happens, and I have my software. I guess so. Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think something like that will happen. I don't know. They don't have containers, right, for the Apple Watch. So there's something else inside that's just they an Apple app. It's just the same iOS, right, in there. So. Uh, you just package it. Well, in that case, I think every company has its own container idea. So you package it the way, like iOS application, it's kind of a container inside. If you, if you archive it and you see what's inside the iOS app, just folders, files that explain how the app is supposed to, you know, how to run. There's some resource files, some code, all together. And then the, the device knows how to run that container. But it's, it's their own, again, the idea is container, containerization, that's kind of a common idea for, for everybody. We just want to deliver software together with environment, which didn't happen before. Before it was small, small, small pieces of software and somebody was responsible for the environment. Somebody. Now it's more like, you know, it's more like packages going together with everything else. And that's why, and it's, and we're going to the, to the you know, and we're making it even more extreme, delivering something which nobody can touch. Because now it's kind of containers which we deploy and we install and then, but still they're kind of available for, we, we can get into, we can see what's inside. And that makes it unstable. The whole deployment is really unstable because it's modifiable. We want to make them immutable. So you put it on the server, you put it somewhere, you put it on Apple Watch and just boom, used somewhere there. I mean, they, it just runs there and, and we don't touch it. If we don't like it, we just drop it and install it again. We never modify what's, what's being executed there. You yeah. need to be able to look inside to understand what went wrong, what you have to fix if it fails, or when it fails. Like that's what I'm saying. So for that, it's like kind of a debugging idea. So if something goes wrong, we of course we may log in there and you know and check and check what's inside. But the better approach is don't allow us to do that. Don't don't do that. But get back to the development environment where we created that and create a unit test for it. Like if you look at the container, for example, even a primitive example. You created the container with some application inside. You put it on the server, you start it, and it's an empty page, like white page, nothing there, but you're expecting a website. Then you question yourself, how come I build it locally, my test passed, and then I, and, and I deployed there, and the, the page is white. So you get back here, and you, create, you try to create a test which will prove that the bug is there, like in the, like in the unit testing, like in the test-driven test -driven development. You create a test which proves that, that your code is wrong. And then when you manage to do it, when you manage to prove it, then you fix the bug and deploy it again and see, okay, the white page is still there. You get back, you create another test. And then eventually you will create test number 15, which will actually prove that, ah, here's the bug. That's the problem. That's why my container doesn't work there. But then you will have 15 tests, the container, the application. They all together is way more stable solution 
than something deployed there plus the system administrator who knows how it works. You just remove the human component from there. You create something which is stable by itself. So you, you, write, you create unit tests for containers. Yeah. Uh, yes, I'm not a developer, so maybe it's uh, something which I just don't get, uh, get that. But this, this concept is strange for me. I mean, if the, if, the, if the application does not run in production, it's not that you were going to write the unit test because you don't know why it, uh, it fails. So, so you need to pinpoint, you need to go into the server, you need to understand what was the exact situation, what was the state of the, of the application in which it failed. So, so for that you need to go to the server and pinpoint the issue, then only you can go back to write the unit test. You need to go to production. Yes, you need to go to the logs. To the logs? Yeah, of the production system to understand what was the state in which it, it failed. Because you can't go just let me think maybe it failed because of that, therefore. I don't have an exact answer for that, but I can only compare that with programming. So in programming, people always kind of often say the same to me. They say, look, if the code doesn't work, the only way to fix it is you need to debug it. You need to go step by step, line by line, tracing your variables and see why it doesn't work. And my answer is that I'm not doing that for, for the last 10 years, or maybe five years. I'm not doing debugging at all and writing a lot of code. All I'm doing is unit testing. So I'm trying to break down the problem into smaller components, into smaller pieces, and create unit tests. And I write many, many, many unit tests, and eventually one of them will fail. Will, will say, boom, I, I don't pass. And that's the moment I catch the problem. And that's the moment I fix the bug. And they go together, and, I and, I, and the application is fixed. I don't know, I mean, I'm not like really, I'm, I don't know how it will happen with servers, exactly how. So I get your point. Of course, sometimes you need to see what's there, what files are missing, or what's going on. And you need to see logs. But that's what I'm saying. I don't know the tools, but they, I hope they will show up. And we'll have tools which will allow us to do unit testing locally, <coughs> easily. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much likely that you can have a situation when unit test goes good, everything is passing 100%, but you have a problem on the integration. You have a problem on the next level. I mean, after unit test, you have some things to do. Unit test may be passing good, but you have pretty, very much likely to have a problem with integration. That's true, the same as in programming. The same as in programming. We have like a number of modules, we create unit tests for them, they pass, and they put modules together, and together they don't work. But that's why we create new new levels. But you still want to go and look for the locks because there is no way you will understand that. What happening. if you want to debug the unit test? Then you just run them. I mean, you run the test and see the output. But how does the output come to you if you are not connected to the remote machine? To the remote machine. You reproduce this whole thing in your unit test. In your integration test. But your logs will be just uh, Just local, outside. yes. Just, just local, not production, yeah. <laughs> so the logging, for the logging, I think, yeah, for the logging, we will see the logging from production. We're not going to SSH there. We'll see the logging. We'll see what's going on there. That's, I guess, will happen. So we know what's going on there, but we don't touch the, we don't go to the server. We don't SSH the machine. We don't SSH the, uh, the container. We just see what's coming from them. So the, the logging has to tra transcend Somehow. Yeah, the logging we'll see. Yeah, we have the logging platform. We connect all these connect, connect, uh, containers to the logging platform, and we see what's going, what, what, what they say, what, they, what these containers say. But then we want to fix. We don't fix there. We always fix locally, and then package everything and redeploy the whole thing. So that's my point. So we don't fix in production. We fix only the sources in the GitHub. We fix the text in GitHub. 
I guess uh, what Ivo was trying to say and what I was trying to say also is uh, is exactly the same. You, you, if you if you get more inter information out of uh, out of the failure, mm -hmm. whether it is by by having the container log into into a logging platform or or having the ability to go to the failing container and see the logs, mm -hmm. we, we didn't propose that you should uh, go and try to fix a server as mm -hmm. we live, but uh, to uh, if you have a reproducible test case. Uh, you, you, you get uh, much faster to the reproducible test case if you get more information out of actual failure out in the field. So you, you, you still want to have it. And you, you don't necessarily want to be able to modify the server. So this immutable server concept, uh, I think this makes sense. But you want to get as much visibility into the server as you can in order to diagnose what was the cause. And so you can put in place the test. If you, if you try to develop this, uh, uh, recreates this problem by just trial and error in your development environment. You just uh, spend a lot more time and effort to hit the same problems that you that you hit in the market one. Again, if I make the same, if I'm a com I, I got I got the problem. I got what you're saying, the logic. Yeah, so you want to see as much as possible and to fix the problem and, as soon as possible. And to make a comparison with uh, with unit tests and integration tests in coding, when you uh, when you uh, get get the a failure report uh, on your code from uh, from uh, QA department or or from from live, you you want to know as much as possible information about how the user encounters the problem to get a reproducible, and then you can reproduce the same situation in your test, verify that indeed now uh, in uh, development your code fails in the same in a way that is consistent with uh, bug report you got either from QA or or from the end user, and and then you can go and fix your code. But uh, if you uh, you can get there much faster if you get accurate information about exactly under what condition and how it is made. I got it. I got the point. But again, this is the last one. We're running out of time. Yeah. So my answer is that, like in programming, kind of counterintuitive, but in programming is the same. If you allow yourself or programmers who write the code, allow them to, to do the debugging and to go through the code when something fails, to get the, if you allow them or yourself to get that information, you are making your life more difficult in the long term. Because you're not using test-driven development, you're not using tests correctly. So the more information you have about the code that fails, the less interested you are to create the unit testing. Because you know where the problem is. You're just debugging, you're seeing, okay, there's instead of plus one, it has to be plus two, you just fix it. Instead of plus one, you say plus two, and the code works. But you didn't create a test. So for me in the future, to understand why it's plus one instead of plus two, I don't have the test that covers the problem. So it's always better in programming to hide the source code kind of from the programmer and let the programmer first create tests that reproduce the problem. And if it's difficult to create the test, it's okay. Make more tests, try more, try harder, try to break it down into pieces, but don't fix the code because you know where the bug is. That's the concept of, of unit testing, of the proper unit testing. So unit tests, you use them as a tool to discover more information about your code. Not the other way around. Not just you discover the information and then, okay, now I write the unit test because I found out the bug. So you have to find the bug only after you have to test, not the other way around. The same, I, I think, will happen with service. I don't know technically how, but that's the direction. Thank you very much. We're out of time. Thanks. Thank